Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. So I'm joined today with my friend and colleague, Martin Woodhead. And in this first episode, we're going to talk about my story about dad and why families need to be involved in their relatives' care. And in future episodes, we'll be speaking about a variety of topics from dementia and music to deconditioning with the global hashtag end PJ paralysis movement and also health coaching and probably anything else which is topical and would seem appropriate to speak about. So we're not constrained and I really want to sort of bring this personal story about our family's experience of um, some of the complexities of healthcare and, you know, bring some knowledge and different perspectives to other people. So dad um, had a life-changing stroke and of course we're not unique in any way. Um, this is a common experience and, you know, for hundreds of thousands of families happening every day. But for him, um, obviously it's personal. For us, it was very personal and um, unique. And of course, it took away his decision-making ability. So I think one of the main purposes of this was really to raise the profile of the family's involvement in healthcare of their relatives and really to encourage families to get involved, to become informed and ask questions and really to seek that sort of what we now speak about this person-centered care. So it's something that's individual to that, that person. So both of us, Martin and I, we're both dentists. So we've got some understanding of how the NHS system works and some of its complexities. And, you know, for me, often it felt like a, um, a maze trying to find your way through things. And that was even with that sort of background. You're just thrown into this unusual situation. So I think the other point really to consider is when families, relatives are becoming involved in um, patients' care is there's always this sort of power dynamic between the health professionals, the patients and the family. And I think it's really important to break down those barriers and really empower people and relatives. So the patients, if they can themselves and the relatives and some, find some solutions to access the best care. So of course we are conditioned to some degree to believe that doctor knows best, but I want to kind of pose, you know, at times throughout this podcast, um, maybe slightly controversial question that, you know, the family knows best too. So we're trying to bring the knowledge of the healthcare professional and the family together so we can we can get maximum benefit so these overwhelming situations that quite often occur absolutely out of the blue can 
you know, it causes life-changing um, situations to all concerned. So, you know, whereabouts did you start with all of this? Good question. Um, you know, I think it's a very emotional time, um, incredibly disruptive to everyone. Normal routines just completely go out the window. Um, life's turned upside down. Lots of challenges. Having said all that, there are highlights and successes along the way as well. But I think one of the biggest challenges we found was in finding information that we needed and you know, finding it quickly when we really needed it. You know, as you know, there's just, you can actually drown in information. There's an overwhelming amount of information online, but, you know, it sometimes can be all over the place, spread across numerous websites. So it certainly takes time, energy, determination to keep to source and kind of filter down what's actually going to work and what's relevant. So if you don't mind me asking and not wishing to pry, how did all this start? Uh, well, if we go back, so it, it's taken me quite a while to actually um, sort of bring all this together. Um, but uh, we were actually going back to 2018. So it was um, early on a Friday morning, 30th of November, 2018. Um, my mum found dad in the bath, sort of shivering, water all drained away at very, very early in the morning. Um, so something wasn't quite right. Um, anyway, she quickly covered him up, called the emergency services, and he was taken off to hospital. Okay, so I'm sort of 300 miles away down south in Cheshire. Um, and I didn't go and see him that day. So I traveled up um, Saturday. So I saw him the following day. And obviously, I, we didn't really know what was wrong with him at that point. Um, obviously, it did turn out that he'd had a stroke and not your sort of classic stroke um, because he could walk, he could lift his arms, he could speak a bit. He looked symmetrical. He could make, he could smile, make facial gestures. So it wasn't the normal um, appearance of a stroke, but something had certainly changed. So um, his eating and swallowing, again, initially appeared normal, but sort of fairly quickly became obvious that there was something, you know, his cognitive function had changed. He could speak but he wasn't saying much. And what he did say was quite uncertain and you know, quite difficult, but hard work for him to say. So you, you know, I arrived at the hospital and noticed all this. We didn't have a diagnosis at this point. Um, and it just, obviously it raises a huge amount of, you know, all sorts of questions immediately. You know, what happened? And then eventually we were told it was a stroke. You know, what kind of stroke is it? What can be done? Is he going to get better? Um, I was quite keen to see a scan and, you know, and various other questions arise. Um, a horrible situation. I'm so sorry. So what, what happened, you know, after, after this initial 
shock, I guess. So I think that day you get, you know, there's a lot to take on, isn't there? So, you know, you see the duty doctor. um, She explained he'd had a stroke. um, And then she said that, you know, a scan had been done and he'd had a large um, bleed on the brain. And there was nothing that could be done. So, um, you know, my my thinking is, okay, what, what can be done? Um, you always you're always looking for the positive and thinking there must be something that can be done but you know that's I think human nature that you tend to um, look at this in a positive as positively as possible um, bearing in mind he was 89 prior to this he'd been recently diagnosed in the same year with um, dementia he was still physically mobile and pretty good for his age, um, pretty good quality of life. And he'd always been a very fit and active man. So hopefully that would stand him in some good stead. Anyway, we were still unsure, you know, of the situation. Um, The doctor had said, well, you know, if there was going to be any improvement with this kind of thing, it would usually happen in the first six months. Yeah, so this is completely overwhelming and all these things happening at the same time. So how exactly did you make this? How, how exactly did you feel at this, at this point? I think you feel quite um, overloaded, um, grasping, you know, you very quickly changed into this new situation, overloaded, emo- not necessarily so emotional because you're, trying to be as be as clear thinking in a way as possible um and so i think doing the, doing the best for him really but the, i think the next thing i think that was quite challenging and was emotional um was the duty doctor said okay um we need to have a conversation with you um now which is about do not resuscitate and so we went very quickly from he's got a stroke and then probably can't do that much and we need to discuss do not resuscitate and I found this was um, quite tricky Um, and she said look you know um, we probably wouldn't resuscitate and but you need to go away and have a think about it this is myself my mother go away and think about it Uh, which we did and obviously we knew what the, the the right answer was but we never actually went back and said, made our decision known. And just sort of leaping ahead slightly, keeping on this topic about do not resuscitate, because I feel this is quite an important topic. Um, Oh, a few weeks later, when he did come home, there was an envelope that came with him in the ambulance and it said, do not resuscitate. And it had all been signed by the doctors. And of course, we thought at this point in time, well, we weren't actually, we'd never actually gave our decision about this, but obviously this was a fait accompli. Um, Having since looked at this further, um, even though it was the right decision, I think it's just quite important to know that this is, as far as I understand it, this is actually a clinical decision anyway. So it probably shouldn't have been 
a decision for us to make as the relatives and a decision we couldn't really make. And I think the thing where it probably went slightly wrong is they didn't come back to us and have a further conversation on that. It had been decided. And, you know, I've recently listened to a very good um, podcast or um, podcast or it was something it was on Radio 4, which I'm going to put in the resources at the end of this podcast. And that actually highlighted this, how that families shouldn't really be given that decision. It is a clinical decision and it's it's a difficult decision for families to be put in. Um, and it's it's a joint decision, really. It's but certainly families shouldn't just find a document with the decision already made. They should know that that is going to happen. So it's part it's patients, family should be very involved in that and know exactly what's going on. It shouldn't come as a surprise. So I think that's probably about enough to say about that. Um, just really to highlight that, how that's really important that you know that situation and, and not to come up. I think it's very upsetting to get that surprise, um, a document um, that you are unaware of. Nothing, and I think that can be avoided. Um, and I guess there's a, I guess what's probably going through your mind is there's a bit of a conflict here between a decision that would appear to be a clinical decision, but on the other hand, the, there appears to be, you know, a thought to involve the family in this process and how much of their wishes are actually taken into account when perhaps the clinical decision might already have been taken. So it appears to the outside of them a bit of a conflict. I understand there's a power of attorney or lusting power of attorney. Uh, did you come across this or um, was this something that might have been in place and, and perhaps you, you could expand on exactly what, what this uh, document actually is? Yeah, so I think moving on to the next, you know, in terms of the sort of legality of everything, you know, dad had had a stroke, so he had lost, type of stroke he had meant he lost his cognitive um, frontal lobe decision-making ability. So it meant he'd lost capacity, um, which was, an, was a problem in a, in a number of ways. But one of the first questions that we were asked was by the nursing staff, do you have power of attorney? So then obviously we can make decisions on his behalf. And of course we did. Um, and, you know, without going into the complexities of all this, um, the, you know, the power of attorney will give the legal authority to other people um, to make decisions on your behalf. And it, and it will list the specific individual powers that someone wishes to give to an attorney. So all I'm really doing is saying, if you don't have this in place already, it could be an issue. And it's something that's very easy to put in place. Um, we were in Scotland and, you know, it's the same across the UK, slight variations in it. But 
had we not had that in place, it would have caused us a few more headaches. So I think it's just really important that everyone has this in place. You never know when something's going to happen um, to relatives and it just makes life easier. So coming back to, you know, all this information that you've suddenly been confronted with, I guess, um, are there any particular assets of this information you think are important? Uh, you know, th there's a balance, isn't there, between being overwhelmed with information and then equally not having enough information to make any decisions. Is there anything that, you know, you you've, you found... Uh, important about you know about the actual quantity and quality of information you, you require at this stage for yeah for, for me um i mean everyone's different and how much information they want some people want more than others and different types of information um i i found it's it was really important to get continuity um to keep seeing, to, to knowing what the progress was, knowing what was happening. Um, you know, doctors um, and nurses, their duty times change, so you can't always see the same person. But if you can see the same doctor and get a continuous, you know, the real picture of what's going on, I think that's was really important um, to get sort of accurate and honest, very honest information. Um, and for me, it was really important to, um, after the diagnosis, actually, to get an explanation of, of, of what it really meant and also to see the brain scan. Because for me, seeing a visual, I'm a, a very sort of, I think if you can see the extent of the, of the bleed, you can see kind of the severity of it. And for me, that really kind of put it in, in context that this wasn't a minor bleed. Um, you could actually see on the on the scan that it was pushing um, the division in the brain in the middle. You could see it was pushing one side, to this, one part to the side. So, you know, this was a fairly major, um, and that was important to me. Um, we, I guess, if he'd had capacity, the doctors would have come and said, you know. Um, they may have offered to show the scan. Um, we weren't offered this, but for me, I had to ask for it. Um, and I think you shouldn't be afraid to ask. So if you want to see scans and you want more information, sometimes you need to ask. Um, saying they're, they're not always used to people asking for, um, you know, certain levels of detail. Um, maybe because we had a, a medical background, um, it was more important to me, but it certainly made a difference. It made me understand it much, much more. Um, but sometimes you need to be a bit more assertive. Um, often you think, oh, gosh, you know, the doctors are busy. I better not ask about this. Um, and I think you might regret that. So. It doesn't take long. It's only maybe a few minutes just to see it. You know, that that picture. Um, you know, it's pretty instant. So, I think don't be afraid to ask. 
I think the point you're raising is really important because, you know, I think there will be people who probably require a lot of information and rightly so to make a decision and other people who may be quite content for, you know, the medics to, to make the decision on their behalf. So I think it's really important, as you say, that, uh, that you transmit that, that requirement for the level of information or the quality of it. And also this kind of blended approach, the fact that if you can see a scan as well as having uh, a discussion, I, th I think this is, this is really important, certainly for a lot of people. You mentioned that he had a stroke. Um, so what, what sort of stroke was this and what sort of effect did that have on the potential for his, his uh, future life and his, his quality of life? Yeah, I mean, it, it was slightly different, as I said, you know, when I first saw him, he, you know, it, it looked normal because he had that symmetry and um, he was still able to move around. Um, so it was slightly different. It was, they actually called it, I'd never heard of it. It was called an intraparenchymal hemorrhage, which is um, a, a brain bleed, just a type of, it's a, it's a bleed rather than um, a blockage so again you know some people want to know nitty-gritty detail um, so you can google it and find out what does that really mean that was me I wanted to find out exactly what it was what the detail was um, and you know that satisfied sort of my needs personality um, I could pass that on to my mother so it helped her and you know also I could it meant you, you kind of knew where you were going to some degree with him so yeah but quality yeah. of care quality of life quality of care and this future care is just you know so so critical really and I guess, um, you know, the actual hospital staff have no real insight into, you know, your father's personality or anything about his previous existence at all. And, you know, I guess how bad he had slight dementia, you mentioned, but whether they, they wouldn't kind of know how, how mild or severe this was given his, given his condition. Um, does that, does that, you know, is that kind of a, a true thing to say about the situation? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think I'm just going to backtrack slightly. Um, I come back to that, but in terms of um, quality of life and what this, um, you know, obviously some people have a stroke and still have their cognitive function. They lose movement, but they're they're still able to functioning in terms of decision making is reasonably good so his ability his decision making um, ability had been lost and what that actually really meant for him was apart from you know he couldn't make his own decisions but it was very at a very basic level so if the nurses said do you want tea or coffee it was a guess for him he didn't know 
Um, so he couldn't make basic decisions, never mind complex decisions. So, um, and because he looked normal, I think um, not all the staff quite realized what where he was because they, they hadn't, there was, they didn't seem to be, um, well, it became apparent actually when he left after a few weeks that not all the staff knew he had had a stroke. So again, the information about his condition didn't seem to be widely shared across the whole team, um, which was quite a surprise. Um, so he, he became, um, you know, a very vulnerable adult, um, you know, completely um, dependent on others for all, for all his care and decision-making. So, um, and, I, and I think that's what I couldn't quite get my head around and maybe other people who were attending to him didn't quite realize the extent of that. I mean, it sounds ridiculous. Um, so, how do so kind of what you're saying is that you know your dad became quite vulnerable you know very very quickly in fact and obviously you know the family have got a role within this and and also as you were saying he didn't he didn't look vulnerable he didn't give any outward appearance of this so staff who weren't intimately associated with the diagnosis and his previous life and situation may not be completely um, aware of this. Did you have any any particular examples that kind of stand out, which you know flagged up this this situation? Yeah, I think you're in that position where there's a lot of changing staff um, in any ward. You've got bank staff. You've got people on holiday off sick. So that continuity and real awareness of what that patient's, what's going on with each patient is quite hard to get. I know it may be written in notes, but the reality is, does it always get read? Does all the information get shared? Um, so there was, a, I suppose there were a few things which uh, staff were unaware of, the, I suppose the first thing was his um, dementia level because dementia can be very mild or it could be very, you know, very extreme and, you know, people are barely functioning. And on that continuum, you know, he was in the sort of mild category, but it almost felt as though he, you know, he was just given that sort of blanket dementia, you know, okay you've got dementia so um, that only means one thing um, and I think that was sometimes quite quite tricky um, because they probably didn't write him off but had lower expectations of him because of that um, the assumption that the dementia was actually much worse than it really was um, but equally, um, we did have some set successes around this. We had discussions on, okay, so how could we um, sort of raise the awareness of 
you know, how could we help this really? And what they always had was a whiteboard above the beds. Um, so they had, you know, an identifier, they had a butterfly above that so you could identify that he was a dementia patient, number one. Um, and then they, we also filled out a sort of questionnaire, which was about, um, you know, who is this person? Um, what's the name of it? I'm just thinking of the name of it now. It's I am. So it, it's basically telling the Alzheimer's Society have um, a questionnaire that you fill out. And it's it's really to sort of give staff an idea of who this person is what's their background, what they used to do, what their, you know, what their job was, what their interests are, what their hobbies are, um, what some of their fears are, what they like to watch on TV, so that the staff can start to personalise their care and get to know the patient and perhaps um, trigger some memories for them and have conversations about stuff that's very relevant to them. So we thought that that was... That was good and that worked um, quite quite well actually. That was um, that was one of the successes actually. You mentioned um, before that you know diet obviously is critically important for somebody who's you know um, strained, I guess, in in bed. Um, did you have any any? difficulties with that we did we did actually because initially we thought he well, he's eating normally um and then what what we noticed was was happening was sort of within a few days he was eating but he was he had no kind of limiter on his what he was putting in so he was eating and he was he wasn't finishing and swallowing what he had before he went on to the next mouthful. So he was, he had sort of no self-control or awareness of this. So of course, then the dietitian got involved and um, of course they suggested um, a different, different type of diet because he wasn't going to be safe on that diet. Although he was swallowing was okay. It was just regulation of how much he was going to swallow at a time that was going to be a problem. So you know, he then was put on to a sea diet, which was, you know, a very pureed diet where food does not really look very appealing. Um, although they try and make food look, you know, in certain shapes, they, they make it look as though it looks like um, broccoli or carrots. Um, and though it's the right color, it just looks very unappealing. Um, But what I think one of the issues that we did have with this, so that that went okay, so we kind of got that sorted out. Um, the problem is, do all the other staff know? So does the tea tea lady know when she comes in the afternoon that, you know, he can't have tea and biscuits because he can't have biscuits because it could get stuck. So basically, the only diet he could have was pureed food, and. You know, it, it just came a constant worry that were, the, were all the staff aware that he was getting the right diet? And most of the time they did. Um, but, 
you know, you've always got that worry if you felt as though you've, you've got to be alert to what's going on. So, yeah, obviously all really difficult. Are, are there any particular aspects that, you know, the immediate family could help with? I think the fact that we're in this situation, so someone's lost their capacity to speak up for themselves, to make decisions, um, they are totally dependent on you, the staff. So I think the family have got to be, they're the eyes and ears of those, their relative. Um, so they've got to be speaking up for this vulnerable patient. So when they're in the ward, they can't be there all the time, of course, but when they are there, they've got to be vigilant, noticing what's going on um, and not afraid to kind of speak up on behalf of the patient. Um, you know, that is, is a huge challenge, though, because obviously family members, you know, you're still working or looking after someone else in the family, you still got other commitments. But I think it's just to say that it's really important to have that level of vigilance when you are there. Mm. Yeah, completely, you know, stressful for the family and I suspect quite frustrating at times as well. Um, and, you know, obviously family are very aware that if, if somebody doesn't eat enough, they're going to lose weight. And obviously, you know, food intake needs to be monitored very, very closely. Um, is there anything else that you think could have been done any differently at all? I think, I think this diet, I mean, it's a, a huge problem, you know, in hospital. Um, what's going on in that patient's mind because they can't communicate with you? You know, are they thinking, gosh, that doesn't look very appealing? You know, this kind of pureed carrot and broccoli that doesn't look like anything, really. What are they thinking? Um, are they hungry? Have they lost their appetite? You just don't know. Um, but the main thing you're concerned about is that this person is shrinking away in front of you, um, clearly not eating for whatever reason, losing weight, becoming, you know, weaker kind of by the day. Um, and how do you how do you make them eat enough so they don't keep losing weight? Um, and I think one of the issues is it's very, very time consuming. Um, for staff so you know they don't have half an hour to spend for this you know on you know a small bowl of porridge on every patient um, and likewise that follows on when the patient goes home you know that the carer in this case uh, became my mother um, very frustrating um, on the one hand trying to you know get someone to eat but you can't force someone to eat so often and it's very, very time consuming to get them to eat small quantities. So in a hospital situation, often if they, if they haven't eaten what's put in front of them, it, it gets cleared away and sort of that's the end of it. And at home, you get into the same kind of frustrations. Um, so I think just 
being aware of that, you sort of go from the situation where you're always eating sort of healthy food to thinking it doesn't really matter what, what they eat as long as they're eating and not losing weight. Um, we find those liquid shakes that are given um, with protein and various other vitamins in them um, quite, quite good. Um, they seem to, he seemed to quite like them. I mean, it's alarming the amount of sugars in them, but you know, we're, we're past that um, because it's, it, we're, we're trying to sort of main, maintain body weight and get some kind of vital protein and um, vitamins in inside them really. Yeah, I take your point about the fact that, you know, priorities, I guess, can change given the actual situation that you have in front of you. Um, I'm not sure how, how long your father actually was in hospital, but um, did you get any sort of uh, feelings about, you know, how they, how somebody would continue who's bedbound for for any length of time, whether that was affecting your father. I think um, initially he was in for around um, four weeks, um, and then he was in. Oh, he was in kind of then for. Yeah, then he was readmitted as of, often a lot of patients are. Um, so he was in for about a total of four months. Um, and then he was at home for five months. Um, and then he sort of passed away at the end of that. But I think one of the issues for us really was, you know, how do you keep someone um, physically act when I say physically active I mean that in a very relative sense how do you keep someone able just to do basic functions um, when they've become bedbound so you know that people become very deconditioned very quickly when they're in hospital <clears throat> um, and it really doesn't take long for people to decondition um, so, you know, every day when we were visiting, there was, there was this, there was a sign in the lift, which said hashtag end PJ paralysis, which basically was meant get up, get dressed and get moving. And, you know, the sort of ethos of this was, you know, fantastic, um, get people moving because people deconditioned so quickly. However, um, it said, you know, for people over 80, if you spend 10 days in bed, this ages the muscles by 10 years. You know, it's, this is really quite alarming. It's quite rapid. Um, so this is why this getting up and get dressed global movement was kind of... You, the ideal the ideal to work towards so they said but well, one one week of bed rest equates to 10 percent loss of strength and it makes the difference between being dependent or independent and we're not talking about being able to walk a mile or do anything too major we're talking about being able to get up from a chair or go to the toilet independently 
So, you know, we will, I'm going to do, we're going to speak about end PJ paralysis another time, but basically it's just a global movement which has been embraced by healthcare, nurses, therapists, medical colleagues. And the aim is really just to provide um, as much uh, mobility for people um, and prevent, reduce muscle deconditioning, um, whether people are at home or whether in hospital. And, wh and what they're, they're thinking is that for a lot of those people in that sort of age range, they perhaps only have a thousand days left to, to live. And, um, you know, that's two and a half years. And so that time has got to be as well spent as possible. Um, either not getting stuck in a, in a hospital system. And if they do, let's try and keep them moving so that when they do go home, they can still do some basic functions and maintain as much independence as possible. In fact, um, you know, when you mention um, in quite, quite starkly, really, that, you know, the average of such patients is they probably are only going to survive for uh, a thousand days, give or take. Um, I think that really sort of flags up the, you know, the crucial importance of making sure that this final period is spent, um, uh, you know, in, in a way that gives them, you know, gratification and, uh, uh, and gives them, you know, autonomy uh, and pleasure. Um, did you find anything that the family can do to, to really help this? you know, to help them retain mobility and strength um, in the hospital and, and also then, you know, after they've been discharged back at home? I mean, one of the things we were keen to do, I mean, this is assuming that um, initially he was well enough to engage with a physiotherapist. So he still had a reasonable amount of strength to do, to um, have some physio sessions. So assume, of course, as, as things deteriorated, you know, if someone's not eating, of course, they start to lose strength. And so it becomes a vicious circle. They can't go for the physio because they're a bit weak um, and losing strength. And the less they do, the less they're able to do. But initially we certainly had some physio sessions um, and of course, you know, the, the, there's a number of issues around that. Um, the physio is limited, obviously. You, you, you couldn't get physio every day. There's um, resources are limited. Sometimes staff were off, holiday sickness, or, you know, other patients were more in need of it. So although the physio sessions were often planned, they didn't always happen. But that was the aim, was to get physio so you can keep moving. But one of the, one of the problems um, I guess we had was um, that continuity of those sessions. However, <clears throat> I certainly attended. Um, I asked if I could attend the first couple of sessions, which I did, 
And I just found this was really, really useful because again, you know, you know, the patient, um, he had lost his capacity. I knew his personality. I knew he's somebody who's a very coordinated man. He could copy people. Um, first physio, and also he had a hearing aid. So first physio session we go to, we get there and he's got no hearing aids in. So, you know, had I not noticed that, she didn't know obviously anything about him. Uh, you know, he's not hearing, so we need to get that sorted. That's first thing. And there is an assumption because he's got dementia that from one session to the next, that he's not remembering what he's meant to do. Um, but what, what our aim is that we're trying to get him mobile, get him just doing things and maining, maintaining some, um, some strength. But I find that was useful to attend with him. So I think for families in this position, if you can go and help them, it gives them confidence that you're there and, you know, I was able to say, translate almost from the physio to him, you know, why don't you do this? Just copy me. I would do what she suggested. And he copied me. So we did get quite good success. The only problem is his condition deteriorated for one reason or another. Not eating was probably the main thing or there was lack of physio. So you kind of get into this tricky situation where you become, you just become very bed bound. Um, when he went home, obviously we were able to do um, some physio as well. Mm. Um, gosh, I'm impressed by you know, the level of care you were managed, you were able to, to give given, especially given the fact that you lived and worked at, you know, a considerable distance away. Um, and, you know, I think it goes without saying the level of care you've given is, is very, very impressive. Um, when your father was discharged, um, was this, you know, the conditioning aspect of, of his care, did that manage to continue at home? Was that an easy thing to do? I, I guess your mother was, you know, pretty stretched and, you know, and, and elderly at the same time. I mean, we felt it was, you know, again, it was very important to um, keep basic functions going. Um, so how could we do this? There was some NHS physio um, coming, but of course there was quite a wait for this. So I kind of investigated, well, what else could we do? So could we buy in some private physio? Now, um, we were fortunate in that we could do that. Not everyone can, can do that. It's, um, it's not cheap to do it, um, but the NHS physio was going to be infrequent and we were going to have to wait so the private physio did come and she was very positive and she was able to kind of work on just getting him moving and walking down we had um, very few steps but walking down a couple of steps and 
just doing a bit more and you know he seemed to enjoy it it seemed to bring him to life when he was interacting with more people and just do, doing more um the only the only trouble we did have was um one of the nhs physios um wasn't so happy that we were having private physio at the same time so we we're having sporadic nhs physio and trying to have the private physio once or once a week or maybe two, this was... once every two weeks actually um mm, sorry to interrupt do you think this was just um, a lack of understanding on the part of this particular physio or or do you think that they were resistant to having um, additional care being, um, you know, kind of recommended by yourself that, that you were taking some autonomy away from their, their care? Or was that... Could have been... And, and you obviously managed yes. to, uh, to pick out the fact that you were uh, entitled to to access private care but i was just wondering whether that was on an individual basis or do you think this this is something that a lot of people could run up against yeah i don't know whether it was because um you know i spoke to someone else and she said no you you, you shouldn't have been told that and of course you can have uh, NHS physio and, and private going on at the same time um, and you know there's a document that um, explains how this can be done and as long as both parties are sharing the information so you know they're not working um, in isolation basically so um, what one does the other's very well aware of um i think as long as that happens and all the information the care is shared it's not a problem uh who knows it was maybe just her personal feeling um but you know it's i think it, it can be difficult when you're just trying to do the best for the patient and your sometimes barriers can can be put in the way but um and you know it's it's uh you certainly don't want to tread on toes but equally you're not quite sure how the system may work at that particular point because you've not really come up against it are there any resources that other resources that you use to kind of encourage mobility or anything that you could recommend to, to anybody listening we do, we um so what else could what else could we do that we were always sort of thinking what can we do to um for not not just for keeping him moving but you know just for his cognitive function stimulation so you know some things that were fun you know we had balloons and one of those little cycling um machines that you can use from an armchair and he was quite keen on that he said he quite liked that um, as I said, he was quite a coordinated man, so he just automatically headered balloons. Um, we used kind of squashy balls. We would do a lot of throwing of balls, so he would catch things 
throw things back. So he still had that hand-eye coordination despite despite everything and just made it some fun. Um, and, and that was about as much as we could do, really, because you're quite limited when someone gets home. Um, they've got very limited mobility and they're really pretty, you know, bed-bound, but they're certainly almost chair-bound most of the day. So, you know, you've mentioned these great efforts to kind of encourage mobility and, uh, um, you know, sort of maintaining that kind of with it uh, attitude. Um, did you come across any, any other particular challenges whilst he was in hospital? I suppose there's a couple of, couple of things that we came across. Um, I think it all comes back to the fact that you've suddenly got this, um, you've got a vulnerable adult and you, you know, they looked after their own hearing aids and their own dentures and whatever else was required in their personal care. And all of a sudden you become involved in managing their hearing aids and, you know, finding their dentures and making sure they're clean and um so i suppose that aspect um which was was quite interesting actually but the hearing aids particularly um of course used to be a complete mystery to me um well one thing that sometimes happens in hospital they you know bits and pieces like that disappear um and you have the frustrations of that you know things disappearing all of a sudden they've lost a hearing aid or have lost a denture or something gets broken but the, the one thing I think that was quite interesting with the hearing aids was the audio um, clinic was incredibly helpful um, in supplying new hearing aids quickly so that was excellent and they just gave a very very good service in terms of backup and kind of getting me up to speed with telling me, you know, how to maintain them. Um, you know, they just, the fact that the batteries don't last long and, you know, what's the difference between about how do you know when the battery needs replaced? Um, you know, and so we had to came up with this, they, they said to me, so if you drop a, if you drop a dead battery on a table, then it bounces. And if it's a brand new battery, it will just, it won't bounce at all. And that was how you could um, differentiate between the two. And, you know, this was a real revelation actually for, for us, but it appeared that most of the health healthcare people didn't know about this. Um, it's quite a basic thing, um, a basic feature of hearing aids that so many of those patients have. Um, so we got round that. Um, and then, of course, we got onto the dental care, which obviously I could deal with. But, you know, dental care and is a bit neglected in hospital, um, you know, and there's nothing worse than not having your teeth cleaned and brushed. And again, this is something you need to help people with, you know, how, how much of that gets done when when you're not there so I think the family need to really be involved in this and and probably do it for the patient it's 
it's not always getting done. Sometimes it's not happening. Sometimes the denture is just getting a rinse under the tap. Is it really being cleaned? You know, what you don't want is another set of problems, which is toothache and decay in teeth in addition to the problems they've already got. So, you know, this is a really important aspect that's not ignored. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the situations you've just been describing probably chime with with most people who've had elderly relatives in hospital. Um, you know, the you know, the added frustrations and the added difficulties by by these aspects. It really does sound as if you've done your absolute utmost to, you know, to go as far as possible to improve your father's quality of life. Uh, is there anything else that, you know, looking back on that time that you'd like to, to, to share with people? I think one of the things, it took us a while to kind of um, start using the hospital Wi-Fi. But once, once we did, um, I had actually, it was an old hospital initially, and I, I actually didn't realise they had Wi-Fi. Um, but once we were kind of hooked into this, um, you know, that made a huge difference in terms of visiting because, you know, we could we could bring um, all sorts of, you know, um, films, music, opera, um, sport, David Attenborough, Billy Connolly, Tom and Jerry, you know, all the things, um, sporting events, news, anything like that. We could we could bring that to him um, and actually that really brought him to life he really enjoyed that um, we you know some sometimes I went in you'd find him just completely slumped over a you know over a chair um, sorry over a table um, you know after his lunch falling asleep he looked sort of as though he's really um, not in a good way, but once we kind of um, brought him back to his to the ward and um, you know got the Wi-Fi going, got Tom and Jerry on, or um, Billy Connolly was a huge success. David Attenborough again was huge success. There was a lot of laughter, engagement, and you know he really, really enjoyed that. He just came back to life. So I think often. It's just trying to do as much to stimulate people as possible, um, particular to them. You know, what is it that they really like? Um, you know, there's just so much that you can you can do. Music is absolutely fantastic, obviously, for um, dementia sufferers. Um, photos, we, we did a photo album, and that was quite successful because... You know, members of staff looked at those and they would talk about the photographs. So that was, again, that was something I think that was really worth doing, sort of old photos. And of course, it didn't matter how many times he would talk about the same story. It didn't really matter. Um, it, it just gave some... Uh, gave the staff something to, um, which was very personal to him, to focus on. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, all those things you've mentioned, that, that that's really, really good. And uh, again, I just have to take my hat off to you for A, thinking of these things and actually managing to put them in place. So I think you mentioned your father was in hospital for four months, I think it was. And um, so during this time, I guess towards the end that you were starting to think about discharge and, and uh, you know, what happens then and about any sort of care package that will be put in place. Um, I guess questions will be going through your and your mother's mind about, you know, coping at home and, and all those sort of things. So um, any particular aspects that you thought, you know, came to mind about this? Yeah, I think you go from that, you've got those different phases, haven't you, where you're um, in hospital phase and you're visiting all the time and you think, you know, when's this going to end? Because this is very, very wearing, um, tiring for, you know, everyone concerned and, you, you know, you want to get somebody home. However, <laughs> then you get onto a different phase. Um and, and how are you going to cope? Um, so, you know, prior to this, you know, you were saying how long they're going to be in hospital. Um, how long is a, a home care package going to take? Will we be able to cope at home? Um, will there be enough in that care package? Um, we were being asked, obviously, you know, can you cope at home or does he go into a care home and then you get into all the issues around that which one would he go into how much is it going to cost is that what he would have wanted is that what you want um so we're in this next phase of what's going to happen next and i think not i think not only that um this is very much focused on his care but what's going to happen for the carer so the carer is my was who was my mother who's 85 what support is available for her so i think there's a lot of things to think about you know um and there's thousands of people in the same situation you know an 80 um elderly couples having to look after each other and can they manage um, yeah. what support is going to be there can we buy in more support how much will the NHS provide in Scotland of course it's very good provision and what other services are you going to need what can come to the house um, mm -hmm. So did you find that um, there were any particular people that you could turn to to try and access this, this help? I think there was a huge team. Um, so I think, you know, going back to this um, dad who's, you know, lost capacity and completely vulnerable and every, unable to look after himself, you realize that there's a huge team of people looking after sort of 
one person. They've all, you know, you've got the doctors, the nurses, and you've got district nurses when you go home, stroke liaison nurse. Um, in hospital, you've got the pharmacists, um, got physiotherapy, occupational therapists that come out to the house, dietitians. We had speech and language. We had a private speech and language person as well social worker, a care manager, you know, a huge team of people. This is an expensive, very expensive um, resource. And, and, you know, and again, just coming back to the fact that, you know, you, you live and work a considerable distance away makes this a huge challenge, I guess. Yeah, I think I, I think there was. So we've we've got this team of people, which is you know fantastic, um, and you can supplement that yourself with anything else that you can do. Um, but this one person has has got huge demands. Actually, they've got a lot of needs. But one thing that was when we were in that transitions phase. Uh, moving from hospital to and what's going to happen are they coming home or not and how are we going to cope obviously there's a, a lot of meetings um, you know and sometimes those meetings were just going to happen on a, on a Wednesday afternoon for an hour and you know I happen to be living 300 miles away but other people you could be living an hour away you can't always just take time off work on a regular basis so though we did that to some degree, we actually started to have, I mean, we're all very um, au fait with Zoom and online meetings now because of COVID. But at that point in time in 2019, um, we weren't doing that quite as much. Um, but what we did, we, that's what we we did my my mother was pretty it um literate so we we thought well can't we just have a skype meeting and you know this really saved um quite a lot of um traveling for me it meant i could attend meetings but i didn't need to travel up and i can i, I was there as um for support really as well so I think it's if you're going to go to you've got you know we attended some of those really large multidisciplinary meetings and I think if one relative like my mother who was 85 just attending on her own it's quite daunting um you know everyone's saying something slightly different how do you remember what's going on um ask questions relay it back to me so we thought right if I, if I can be there um, and take notes, ask questions um, and just be there as a point of support, um, this, that, that was a huge success actually. Um, Wi-Fi worked well in the hospital. So she took her iPad, hooked up to that. Nurses were very impressed that she was doing this. Um, and we were also able to do that from home if we had any multidisciplinary meetings. So I'd highly recommend doing that. 
the hospital weren't offering this at the time um but i think now kind of post covid um this is something they 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 can certainly offer there is software to have this sort of remote type consultation so it's a, a much easier thing to do that's obviously really good to hear because you know we all know that geography plays a huge distance let alone the you know the difficulties of you know traveling to the hospital and parking and and everything else and and doing it you know on top of your day job so so that that's really good to hear um and talking about all this information you know which can be quite emotional and i suspect with a lot of a lot of people a lot of information will you know especially if there's a huge amount of it will go in one ear and come straight out through the other um any any aspects of that that um, you know you think are important or anything to make make that uh, process easier? Yeah, I mean, I think that was an added thing for being there as a point of support. So whether you know, as a family, it doesn't have to be the necessarily the same person going to support, but I think if there's more than one of you going to the meetings it really helps you know because we know from sort of the medical research that that when when you attend a medical appointment you know a lot of the information that you're told just gets forgotten um huge amount gets forgotten um and in it's quite alarming um because they're often in very emotionally charged situations, you know, relatives or patients are worried um, and they're not, they're, they're just not able to remember the information. And, and also I think the other thing that's, you know, quite well documented is the fact that what they do remember often is incorrect. So um, information, if, someone's trying to pass information on to someone else in the family, are they going to remember it? And is it going to be accurate? So I think if you can have someone else there to support and take notes and just purely listen, um, perhaps ask the odd question at appropriate times, I think that's really, really valuable. Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. So, um, yes, probably, you know, after all of this, um, maybe there are some points that you'd like to kind of pick out to kind of summarize all of this, this, this arduous process that your father went, but also you and your mother went. Are there any particular points you'd just like to, to pick out of all of this? Um, I think I think um, certainly this um, attending meetings is with support really important so that people don't become overwhelmed, um, especially when they're they're the one person there in a team of healthcare people, so they can feel quite um, reticent about asking questions and challenging decisions when it's sort of them, um, just them 
within that other bigger medical team. So I think um, family or friends are essential to be part. So I think there's a, a sort of triad um, in getting the best care for the patient. You need to have what's right for the patient. The medical staff will, can do their, do their part in the medical side um, and hopefully the well-being. But I think the, the family are, if the family are not involved in the care, and explaining to the medical staff what this patient is like, what their needs are, what their wants are, and looking out for them, they're perhaps going to miss out and not get the best care. So I think you have to be part of it, very much part of it, as, more, as many people are. But sometimes people hang back or feel they don't want to ask too many questions. They're being a nuisance. Um, and, and I think as long as it's done in the right way, I think you've, you have got to be part of that care for, for that patient, even more so in this kind of situation where someone's lost their own ability to do it for themselves. So the family are really, I think, are a massive resource of information and help. And, you know, it just I just don't think it should be wasted. Um, thousands of people in this situation um i think it's be assertive in the right way politely speak up ask questions seek information seek what you need um because it's not just the patient it's the patient left it's the patient's um husband wife partner who also has needs in this situation as well so get the best care possible you know, sometimes you only get one chance to do this. And there's a huge amount of information out there. Um, we have mentioned a number of things from dementia to um, dementia. Hang on. I'm gonna have to cut this bit. Um, so we've mentioned um, a number of things um, about deconditioning, dementia, um, being aware, being part of the care and some of the resources relevant to that will be at the end of the podcast. So if you want to delve further into this, uh, any of those areas, you, you can do that after, after the podcast. Well, and you've, you've been really frank in, in kind of uncovering what must have been a highly emotional situation for, for both you and your mother. And I think the information you've uh, expanded on uh, has been absolutely invaluable. And the, the situation that you've described, as you've said, is probably one that is shared by thousands and thousands of people. And it's very difficult, I think, for most people to articulate the, the difficulties that they've come across or perhaps anticipate um, in the care of, of an elderly relative. So thank you very much indeed for going into depth about all of this. And uh, thank you also for making these other resources available on the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Martin, for, you know, 
chatting, letting me chat this through. Um, and as you say, we're certainly not unique. And um, you've, you know, experienced um, elderly relatives in a similar and different way. So thank you for, I say, chatting this through. And um, so I look forward to the next episode where we're going to talk about um, dementia and its relationship with music, which is quite um, enlightening. See you next time. Let's Chat Health with Anne Budenberg, empowering patients to be involved in their healthcare. care.